I think it's pretty safe to say that Pixar has spoiled us. When it comes to computer-generated movies, they've kind of set a new standard for things, where the quality of the animation is remarkable and the writing is pretty stellar, and the finished products themselves really make a strong case for this type of animation and this type of production method. The first completely CGI TV series, though, came out in 1994, and I was actually of the correct age to have seen this and to have appreciated it and to remember it quite clearly. The show was called Reboot, and it was initially conceived in the 1980s, but the tech wasn't there to make it a reality at the time. And the people who came up with the idea and who ended up working on the final product were the same people who made a music video for the band Dire Straits for the song Money for Nothing, which some people might remember. That was one of the earlier examples of a public-facing product that was created by CGI. And if you look it up, if you go to YouTube and look for Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, you'll see what I'm talking about. The animation is incredibly simplistic, but for the time, it was pretty remarkable because it was this new thing. The same could be said of Reboot, which again was the first completely CGI TV series. And for the time, it was just amazing. We were all (laughs) very impressed back in 1994 by the quality of this and how different it was from all the other cartoons that were on TV at the time. But looking at it now through the lens of modern day CGI, it's pretty ramshackle. Now the show itself centered around a city called Mainframe. And this was a place where an entity called the user would load games. And these games to the denizens of mainframe looked like giant cubes that would emerge from the sky and plant themselves around different portions of the city. People who were trapped within these cubes as they fell would have to face off against the user at whatever game was loaded. And if these mainframe citizens who were trapped within this game cube lost against the user, that portion of the city and the people inside it were destroyed. And so the games being played were very reminiscent of the computer games that were being played at the time. Sometimes it was something simple like chess or something simple like a tennis or other sports game. Sometimes it was something more like Dungeons and Dragons. And most often, the people who were competing at these games were just regular citizens like you and me. These were people who lived and worked in mainframe and didn't have any particular skill set playing these games. And so when they competed against the user, the user was the villain and was kind of like a superpowered villain. You could imagine watching the show that this user was actually probably like a teenager who was just really into games, but to the people here who faced deletion, essentially. If they lost, this person was terrifying. And so of the local characters living within Mainframe, there were a few main characters, such as Dot Matrix and her little brother Enzo. And then there was also the regional guardian with a capital G, whose name was Bob. And there were different guardians for each of the cities inside of the computer, Mainframe being one of them. 
And being the guardian, Bob had certain abilities, including an athletic prowess that allowed him to compete better within the games, but he also had this forearm-mounted device, which was called Glitch, which allowed him to activate different powers when he competed within these games, so it would grant him additional abilities. If he was playing like a Dungeons and Dragons style game, maybe he could turn it into a sword, things like that. And in addition to fighting the user within the games that would drop down onto mainframe, Bob and Dot and Enzo and other characters were constantly squaring off against the local villains, these viruses named Megabyte and Hexadecimal. And then Megabyte had some bumbling henchmen called Hack and Slash which were a little bit like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles villains Bebop and Rocksteady. Now, anyone who knows anything about computers or software will recognize a lot of the terminology jokes that are scattered throughout the show. And will probably recognize, too, that the show itself is slightly metaphorical, representing kind of a fantasy version of what happens within a computer, and that was the intention. Part of the rationale behind the development of the show, in fact, was to increase the enthusiasm about computers by showing the internal components and the inner workings of the computer hardware and software through real-world-esque situations and characters and metaphors. Getting people interested in these things has always been a little bit difficult because the way that computers work and the way that software works can seem in direct conflict to the way that the real world works. It's just such a very different system and a very different way of thinking about things. And that's what I want to talk about today, not generating interest in computers, but the latent conflict between cyberspace, between the online world, the computer world, the technological world, this fake metaphorical world that can seem very real, and the real world, or the meat space as it's sometimes jokingly called in comparison to cyberspace. The conflict between these two worlds is something that we are forced to cope with with increasing frequency. And we finally reached a point where the government and other bureaucratic systems are taking a good long look at this and figuring out what the future of this conflict might look like. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. This episode of Let's Know Things is brought to you by HostGator. HostGator has a vast array of hosting services for people who are looking to start blogs or websites for their businesses or portfolios for their design services. If you are looking for such a thing, I highly recommend checking out hostgator.com LKT where you can see their services and get a significant discount. This episode is also brought to you by Audible. If you've been looking for an excuse to give audiobooks a try, this is your excuse. Going to audibletrial.com slash LKT will net you a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice, anything from their collection of a few hundred thousand different audiobooks. So pop on over there, give it a listen. I think you will enjoy it. audibletrial.com slash LKT. And with that, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to start from today is from a website called All Flicks, which is kind of a 
blog centered around Netflix and other streaming services. And the article is entitled, Pennsylvania to Apply 6% Netflix Tax. The so-called Netflix tax is not just applied to Netflix. It's also applied to other streaming services like Hulu and HBO Go. It's also applied to ebooks and other online digital downloads that you might pay for. And the reason that this is interesting is that traditionally, the laws and taxes that apply to digital downloads and streaming services have been fractured, to say the least. They are applied or not applied seemingly at random. And even though Pennsylvania is implementing this type of tax, the vast majority of the United States still does not. And so when this type of tax goes into effect, it is actually quite notable because it is still so rare. But the discussion around this topic actually highlights a much larger conflict, and that is the conflict perceived or real between the internet and the digital world that we've created using internet and other technologies and the real world, the non-digital world that most of us spend most of our time in. But the reality here is that increasingly these two worlds are becoming intertwined. And so when we talk about the legalities of one or the other, very often we're actually talking about both. And that applies to the taxation of certain types of products within one world or the other as well. But let's start by talking about the conflict, the overarching conflict between cyberspace and meat space, as the two have been called sometimes humorously, sometimes not. When people complain about the internet today, very often what they're complaining about is the mobile internet, which is a much more recent iteration of the internet and something that has changed the society, the socializing, the method of use of the internet over the past decade or so. And many of the most surface level complaints about the internet is about how it is ruining the social skills of people who use it. People seem to at least remember a time where people would sit at coffee shops and talk to each other and they'd sit on the buses and interact with each other and they would sit at the dinner table and have lively conversations. And whether this remembrance is real or not, it's actually been shown that a lot of these types of romanticized memories about a society that once existed never actually existed. The memories are pop culture remembrances or simply romanticizing about an ideal that we guess must have existed but never actually did. But this seemingly remembered history, this collective hallucination about a time in which we all sat and talked to each other and interacted one-on-one face-to-face all the time, is something that has been perennially under threat. There's a really great photo that comes to mind anytime I hear people whining about how smartphones are ruining society because we don't talk to each other anymore. And it's a photo from a newspaper way back in the day when reading newspapers was becoming a more common practice. And it shows a photo of people sitting, I I believe it was in a bus, everybody with their newspaper open, nobody talking to each other, everybody wearing their dapper clothes and their fedoras and such. And the article was making this exact same claim that this new technology, this newsprint, this newspaper was keeping us from talking to each other and interacting with each other in public the way that we used to. And so this is not something that's new. If you go back far enough, you have Greek philosophers complaining about the fact that 
the advent of writing and people becoming literate was ruining the practice of oration. And so we were losing our ability to talk with each other because suddenly we were writing at each other. And so something needs to be done about this new technology. I think it's an aspect of human nature to always look at the newest technologies and the new means of communication and decide that it's probably going to be the cause of the end of the world. Now, does this propensity for complaining mean that there's no validity to the claims? No, I don't think so. I I do think that there is a lot that is changing about relationships and society very quickly as a result of these technologies. There is something to be said for a change up in the way that we have shared experiences. It could be that now, rather than having a shared in-person experience the way that we once might have, even if we're all watching the same television, we're in the same room having that shared experience, watching the same television, able to read each other's body language and speak to each other across the room. Whereas now, a shared experience would be just as likely, or perhaps even more likely, to take place on our phones. And so rather than watching something on a television set in the same room, we're sitting in very different rooms, very different zip codes, maybe very different countries, all watching the same news event unfold on Twitter or on Instagram or on Snapchat. It could be argued that this is the superior way to take this in and that we have access to more information as a result of it, more customized information about this shared event that's happening. But it's undeniable that this is something that's different, whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing, a good difference or a bad difference. It is different. So I can certainly see why people would perceive this to be something that is likely going to radically change the way that we interact with other human beings. Another common argument that I see for why the internet is ruining everything is that it provides us with too many options, which is to say that in terms of our opportunities, in terms of the options of things that we have to do, the things that we can read or that we can watch, that we can listen to, suddenly our options are so vast, potentially infinite for all intents and purposes, we have a much more difficult time choosing what to focus on. And as a result, we often spread our time and our attention between what could be argued as too many different things. Not giving a depth of attention to anything, but rather focusing on a breadth of different options. Giving 10% of our attention to each different song or podcast or TV show or person that we're interacting with rather than 100%. I've seen a few different studies that indicate that dating is changing as a result of this vast wealth of options that we have. Because suddenly we're not limited to the people who live within our city or who live within our block or who go to the same university as us in terms of a potential dating pool. We essentially have everybody on the planet, everybody who is on these networks at least as an option. And this creates a situation then where we might come across somebody who's like an 80% match, somebody who is a really great match But when we see them, all we can think about is, well, there's probably somebody even better. There's probably an 81% match. And then we find them and we say there's probably an 82% match. And when we have this vast swath of options, the way that we respond to good options changes. In fact, we might look at a good option and no longer consider them to be good. We'll consider them just an average. It changes the way that we perceive our options, to have this many options, and as a result can create kind of a fear of missing out, a FOMO situation, 
with the potential activities that we can participate in this weekend, with the different places that we can go to eat, with the different people that we could potentially go out on a date with. And that does, again, dramatically change the way that we interact with each other and the way that we conduct ourselves in these different situations. For better or worse is kind of irrelevant for the purpose of the conversation, but it does change things. Another frequent source of outcry against the digital world is the fact that we have this access to so many different things and so many different people and so many different ideas that who knows what type of information we're accessing, who knows what we're getting up to, who knows what types of ideas we're exposing ourselves to. And these very ideas, these options, these concepts might be dangerous to our development, might be dangerous to how we conduct ourselves, the choices that we make. And this is something I'll talk a little bit more about in just a few minutes. But this is very much a part of the larger outcry against the digital world from people who believe that it is ruining or in some way contributing to a negative evolution in the real world. But there is a more positive way of looking at all of these movements. You can look at the smartphone revolution and the fact that people are always staring down into their device and say, oh my God, we're not socializing anymore. We're all ignoring each other. We're in the same space and not even making eye contact. Or you can say that having access to all of this information and all of these online relationships with people who are incredibly good matches for us in terms of our ideologies and thought processes and concerns, this allows us to make a lot of use of previously wasted time time where we would have been sitting on a bus staring out the window or interacting with somebody and having an incredibly non-valuable conversation for anybody just to pass the time, now we can engage with information that's actually interesting, that's actually helping us learn with people who are actually challenging us. These devices and the world that they connect us to, it increases our options in terms of information and relationships and everything else. It's something that, if we make use of it, can actually help us be better in the real world, better versions of ourselves because of all the opportunities that it offers us. It helps us replace these imperfect activities and priorities and relationships with others that are more custom-fitted for us and our needs. And to a large degree, it levels the playing field, giving us more info and resources and access to more connections and ideas than ever before in history. And these are things that have always been available to a certain degree and to a certain subset of people, but with much more difficulty and far fewer people, because it was usually people who were in the upper echelon of society, either because of their wealth or because of their connections or because of their family name. Things that were previously only available to the fortunate few are now available to the everyday Joe. And what's available to the everyday person today a lot of these things are resources that were not even available to the wealthiest person in the world a mere decade ago. They couldn't have been had at any price, and we have it so casually now that we take it for granted. Social isolation is absolutely a thing, and it can be amplified by the modern tools and access that we have. Things like deliverable everything, the fact that you can get essentially anything delivered to your door just by tapping around on an app, means that perhaps a, a depressed person can sink deeper into depression because they are not forced to go out into the world and expose themselves to sunlight and expose themselves to random interactions with strangers. 
And yes, it's absolutely possible to become addicted to anything. That said, more people who formerly wanted relationships but had trouble building them because perhaps they were more introverted or were not able to find the types of relationships that they wanted in their immediate geographic cultural area, these people suddenly have the ability to form real bonds, real valuable relationships with other people. Not wanting to go outside, not wanting to sit and have a beer with somebody. These are not indicators of an unhealthy person wanting unhealthy things. It's just a difference in preference of how you interact with people. And having these tools, having access to this digital world where it is not unusual to want to connect with people but stay at home and to not sit with them in person but to still make a mental connection, that's pretty remarkable. That is opening up so many different possibilities for so many different people. And with anything like this, any groundswell, any change that allows for this type of social shift, there's going to be abuse of it. it. It's absolutely possible that it'll enable different types of addiction that didn't exist before. In places like South Korea and Japan, you see a lot of internet addiction. And whether or not this label is just the result of liberal application by the government and different government services who see somewhat normal activities but perceive it to be dangerous because it's different, it's hard to say. But some of these cases, I'm absolutely certain, are actually dangerous instances or examples of a certain type of depression or a certain type of shift that is unhealthy. And that's something that we have to cope with anytime a big social change happens, whether it's the result of technology or something else. It's, it's possible to become addicted to anything. And when your entire culture and your entire age demographic is doing most everything online first, like they prioritize the online world in a lot of different ways, of course you'll spend more time there. And of course there's the chance that growing up with that, you will do that to the exclusion of all else. And that can look very bad and it could potentially become very bad. If you, for example, focus on tending to a digital farm and as a result forget to eat, these are real issues and, and this is the sort of balance that we'll have to strike. And it's a type of imbalance that we will have to do our best to remedy. So these are some of the existing conflicts that exist and seem important to understand going into the discussion about this issue. And what we're talking about here specifically is local governments taxing online entities, taxing online services, taxing the flow of information as opposed to tangible, concrete, atom-based products. And so in practice, what we've got is Pennsylvania's government deciding to tax people who are using online streaming services the same way that they would tax people who are using a local swim park, for example, a water park. And I think a lot of people who hear about this type of thing have kind of a knee-jerk reaction against it. And part of this is that it, people just have a tendency not to like taxes. But part of it, too, I think stems from the idea that the internet is a very different place, and perhaps not even a place at all. But it's an idea that emerged with very anti-establishment sympathies. And so a great deal of the foundation of the internet was created to exclude to a certain degree commerce and to exclude to a certain degree government entities, to make it very difficult or at least not easy for them to come in and take over and start censoring people and start charging for everything and so on. 
Now, that's part of the issue. And another part of the issue is that the government and other bureaucracies of that sort have just been really slow to catch up with the online revolution that's happening. It is remarkable to me how many people who are running the United States don't use email and never have and probably never will. And if they're not using email, which is like a foundational technology of the internet, that was one of the first things that happened using this technology. That means that they don't understand everything that's happened after that either, or or it's a good chance that they don't. So a lot of the concerns of the modern American, the modern American of all ages, are things that these people are just incredibly and completely blind to. And so it makes perfect sense then that the tax law around these services would be ridiculously outdated as well, because they just don't understand how important and foundational these services and technologies have become. And one of the main things that they have been slow to catch up with and slow to recognize, or at least respond to, is the fact that anything that can be converted from atoms into bits, from real tangible stuff, into digital stuff usually results in a cheaper version of whatever. On scale in particular, there's just no contest. You can infinitely copy and paste and duplicate and share anything that you can make digital, and it does not reduce the quality of the original. Whereas in the real world, every time you make a copy of something, you have to pay for additional materials, you have to pay for shipping, you have to pay to store it. There is an additional cost every time you scale up, and the same is not true on the internet. It is so cheap to store data, to store bits, and to share them, that it is for all intents and purposes free in most cases. And so you pay for the development of something, but then to share it, to distribute it, to copy it, it really doesn't cost anything. Whereas in the real world, you have those development costs, but then you also have the continuing costs forevermore to continue to duplicate and ship and store and so on. But now some governments are recognizing this. They're recognizing that this system, this move to the digital space is a big deal and it's something that is not going to go away. It's not like a silly trend that they can just safely ignore and wait for it to pass. And the governments who are recognizing this are saying, hey, we see you and we want a piece of that action. And this response kind of makes sense, if you think about it. Streaming services are not magical, and as much as it is essentially free to copy and paste and duplicate and share on the internet, it's not absolutely 100% free. And Netflix in particular is an interesting creature in this economy of supposedly infinite scale. Because although it is far cheaper and easier to run an online streaming service for video, especially when compared to like shipping out DVDs the way that they did when they started as a company, there is still real tangible infrastructure behind what they do in much the same way that a water park has tangible infrastructure. And so it makes sense in a lot of ways that that infrastructure should be taxed in the same way that a water park would pay for the parking lot and would pay for the grounds that all the water slides and pools are built on and would pay for the water that they use. These are concrete things that are being rented, that are being used by people, that people are paying to access. 
And if we're going to tax things, then that means that we should probably tax all the things equally or as equally as we can figure out how to tax them. And so what, what is it that we are taxing when it comes to something like Netflix, a streaming service that we access using only our computers that doesn't have an actual location that we go to when we use it the same way as a water park or a movie theater? Well, there's offices, there's people in those offices. They, they might not be next door, and we might not ever have to know where these offices even exist, but they do exist. There are a lot of people who work for Netflix, and they have offices. And so it absolutely makes sense to pay taxes on those. And I'm sure Netflix has been already. That hasn't been the tricky part of this equation. The tricky part is the servers. There are massive computers all connected to each other, sometimes directly because they're in these massive server farms. And sometimes just digitally. So a bunch of different computers located all over the world, all connected to each other digitally, working together as like a massive supercomputer. And so those servers, that's where it becomes a little bit tricky because in most cases on a local level, they will be paying taxes, yes, for the space that they're using and the electricity that they're using. But what about the bandwidth that they're using? When I say bandwidth, that means... It's essentially the amount of internet you're using. If you're going to picture the internet as a resource in the same way as electricity, and if you picture like electricity as a type of energy that's flowing through a tube, and that tube is the wire that you use to send electricity from place to place, internet works the same way, sort of. Though typically, instead of going down a metal wire of some kind like electricity, it will go through a fiber optic cable. But a fiber optic cable, like a wire, has a finite amount of bandwidth, and that's how much internet you can send through each of these cables at a given moment. So the more people in a particular region are using the internet, are using high-speed internet, the more of that finite amount of bandwidth is being used. And the finitude of this resource is a completely different creature. There's a lot of scandal around this because the internet service providers were given a bunch of money by the government to expand their reach at one point, and they used it to pay off their debts instead of expanding the reach of the internet services. And so there's a completely different story there that's worth looking into if you get the chance. But for the purposes of this conversation, we'll just say there is a finite amount of bandwidth, and services like Netflix use a lot of it. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot, a lot. In mid-2015, Netflix accounted for 36.5% of all downstream bandwidth usage in North America during their peak hours. And so what that means, there's upstream and downstream. Upstream is when you're uploading something. Downstream is when you're downloading something. And the vast majority of internet usage is downloading something because you're pulling stuff off the internet so that you can see it, you can use it, you can access it, you can watch it. And so in mid-2015 at least, during peak hours at least, throughout North America, Netflix accounted for over one-third of all downstream internet usage. That is massive. That is absolutely ridiculous based on the amount of internet usage that is taking place. To account for over one-third of that is just unbelievable. It's astronomical. And so you could argue then, bandwidth being a finite resource and the local consumption of bandwidth being used in this way, swaying so heavily towards Netflix usage, 
that Netflix should be taxed more based on that. It would be like a water park using over a third of local freshwater resources. Yes, everybody's taxed on using that resource to begin with, but because they are using so much of it, it stands to reason that maybe they become kind of a different entity at that point, and maybe a different type of tax situation makes sense. It's unusual, and it arguably warrants extra oversight, perhaps extra taxation, because of the immense stress that it puts on these local finite resources. But then it isn't just Netflix that is staring down the barrel of impending taxation. Amazon, for example, has been dealing with the same in many states. And in some states, you already get taxed for buying things off of Amazon, which, if you live in the majority of states in the United States, sounds horrible because it's just so easy buying things on the internet that you don't even think of it in the same terms that you would think of walking into a local Macy's or a local Walmart and buying something. Those places, it makes perfect sense to pay taxes on the things that you buy if if you pay taxes in your state. There are a few states that do not charge a sales tax. But if you are in most states in the United States, you pay on local purchases, but you do not pay on internet purchases. And this is something that kind of makes sense because it's the way things have always been done. But again, if you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have that latent advantage for this business that's essentially like a deconstructed Macy's or Walmart. You are still purchasing the same products. Those products still end up in the same place. They are just purchased and shipped and stored in slightly different ways. And all of the connective tissue to this system saves Amazon a bit of money so they can charge lower prices. And so the competitive advantage is already there by virtue of the structure that they use. But they get this additional latent competitive advantage in a lot of cases because very often you don't have to pay taxes on it. And so when I was living in Montana, I didn't pay sales tax on anything, and that includes Amazon. So if I ordered a computer while I was living in Montana, I would pay a few hundred dollars less in some cases than somebody who lived elsewhere. Here in Kansas, where I am now, the sales tax is astronomical compared to a lot of other places. And so just going to the store, I'm already paying more than somebody else in another state who is buying a similar product. But the same applies on Amazon, where if I order something there, I would pay a few hundred dollars more than somebody living in Montana buying the same computer. It's a really weird dichotomy because both situations make sense looking at the problem through a certain lens. In places like Montana, they don't agree with sales tax to begin with. So that's a, there's a completely different conversation and philosophy that's going on there. But to not pay taxes on something that you purchase online makes a certain type of sense because you're not consuming as many local resources to make this purchase take place. On the flip side, because no taxes on online purchases do create such a natural competitive advantage, and then as a result put a lot of local businesses out of business when somebody like Amazon starts shipping the same products for a lower price and a non-taxed price than the local competitors, Well, those local competitors go out of business, and then the government makes less taxes on these products that are being purchased, and as a result, they have less money to put into local infrastructure. And so it makes sense that they would want to figure out what aspects of this online sales process they actually could tax legitimately, 
and then get those taxes in place as quickly as possible, because otherwise we wouldn't have paved roads, we wouldn't have bridges, we wouldn't have school systems, and so on. As much as I don't like paying taxes on my Amazon purchases, I can understand why they would want to do it. There's a lot of downsides to not taxing all consumer purchases the same for the individual businesses, but also for the society that has such a double standard. Looking at the big picture of this, looking at the big picture that includes these natural advantages that online companies have over real-world brick-and-mortar companies in most cases, it really underscores the rapid shift in power that is occurring from old guard companies to newer, largely tech-based companies that are based online or building devices that allow people to access that online world. When economic success stories like Walmart are kind of shaking in their boots because of upstart companies like Amazon and spending billions of dollars to acquire different e-commerce sites and companies because they just they simply cannot compete on almost every level with companies like Amazon, you know that something big is happening. This overall lack of involvement from existing governmental entities doesn't indicate that this isn't a big move. It simply indicates that it is a move that is occurring so quickly that these somewhat cumbersome bureaucratic entities are having trouble keeping up. And so this rapid shift is really scaring people. It's creating a lot of changes that causes some people to worry that society is completely shifting, perhaps in a negative direction, and it's happening too quickly. And it's creating a rift where the old guard, whose businesses are predicated on older technologies and older relationships that they've bought into, they're upset because that is changing and their advantages are no longer advantages. In some cases, these advantages have become liabilities. But the increased overall access to information is another thing that is concerning some of the forces that be. And what I mean by that is if you look around at the tools that we have access to very suddenly, if you look around at the resources that we have, whether or not we actually make use of them in most cases, looking around at these immense powers that we have very suddenly, it makes sense that some of the people who have traditionally been the sources of power, who have traditionally had access to more power than the rest of us, would be more than a little disconcerted about this movement. I link to Wikipedia pages a lot in my show notes for this podcast, not because Wikipedia is always the best resource for all types of knowledge, but because it's by far the best encyclopedia ever published and tends to have most of the most consistently relevant information that I want to share with people. There have been a lot of different studies over the years on the reliability and accuracy of Wikipedia, particularly in comparison to traditional encyclopedias like the Encyclopedia Britannica. The most recent and seemingly most thorough comparative research that I could find between Wikipedia and Encyclopedia Britannica was done in 2014 in Germany, and it found that Wikipedia is approximately 99.7% accurate. And so 0.3% of the time there are errors, but 99.7% accurate is pretty damn good. And what that amounts to numerically is about 3.8 mistakes per article. And that could be a typographic mistake or a grammar mistake or a date that is incorrect. There's a lot of different types of mistakes, many of them small. 
And when compared to Encyclopedia Britannica, that's not that bad. Wikipedia has 3.8 mistakes per article. Encyclopedia Britannica has 2.9. And so it's a not insignificant difference. There's obviously still value in the type of editing that goes into these traditionally published encyclopedias. But considering that Wikipedia is over 60 times the size of Encyclopedia Britannica, that's really not too shabby. Accounting for that type of scale, that is remarkable. So why, knowing this, does Wikipedia have the reputation for inaccuracy? Well, partially, it's the fact that it is a haven for over-the-top hoaxes and frauds. And any that are found or conducted are typically reported on very enthusiastically because they tend to be hilarious or ridiculous or scandalous in some way. And a lot of these reports leave out the fact that when one of these changes are made, one of these hoax changes are made, they are typically changed back really quickly because one of the superpowers that Wikipedia has is that it's got a perpetual chronography. So you can go back to any previous state and replace the changed state with that previous state. So somebody goes in and changes the date of America's founding, you can go back and change it immediately. And so typically that incorrect date will only be there for a matter of seconds or minutes at most. But this isn't reported on. And so Wikipedia has the reputation of being the site that is full of ridiculous information and hoaxes, when in reality, the amount of misinformation that's on the site is 0.3%. And of that, it's, it's usually the same type of stuff that a traditional encyclopedia would have incorrect as well. Periodic typo, the periodic wrong numeral on a date, maybe an incorrect but similar name in a particular article. And so if you use Wikipedia the same way that you would use Encyclopedia Britannica, accepting most of it as well-researched fact, but still questioning things and leaving yourself open that something might be incorrect, then you're in pretty good shape. And so having access to an encyclopedia like this for free, 60 times the size of any other encyclopedia ever made, and it's free and largely error-free, that is immense. And in my mind, Wikipedia and different resources like it, they're one of the major flattening innovations on the internet. Flattening in that they reduce the information imbalance that has traditionally existed within society. Where people up top, the societal and economic overclass, have traditionally had access to a great deal more information than the rest of us. And that just perpetuated and increased that imbalance. Today, that is less so the case. Yes, there's still a distinct advantage to going to a university, and a high-quality, expensive university in particular, but there are far more resources today, including things like Wikipedia, that allow just anybody, anybody who has access to the internet, whether through the smartphone or through a computer terminal at a library, they have access to essentially the same information as anybody else. It's just perhaps in a different format. It's not being taught at them by a lecturer in a classroom. It's being presented in these largely, somewhat ugly web pages. And so there's still a great deal of ground to cover in terms of equalizing things in terms of this access, because it's still difficult to discover. The discoverability is still an issue in the presentation of this information. But the fact that it's there is such a huge step. It is such an immensely 
wonderful step if you believe in egalitarianism and the ideals, at least, of democracy. And it is something that is disconcerting for the people who have traditionally held more power than other people and who wish to maintain that power. Because it means, Wikipedia means, and the prevalence of 24-hour online news networks means, and different amazing Twitter accounts that allow journalists and other people who are trying to disseminate information, they can connect with people directly, not even having to go through traditional news networks. All of these things mean that we have access to more information and more direct information, more direct data, unfiltered through the lenses that have been traditionally applied by people in power. And so there's definitely negative ways to use these technologies, and a lot of them become just new ways to sway people's opinion toward whatever your opinion happens to be. But used well and used intentionally by people who are seeking information, any one of us can get more information now, casually, easily, free, than some of the most informed people in the world only 20, 30 years ago. That is an immense gravity shift in terms of influence and the power that each of us wields. And so again, it makes sense that people who have traditionally held the reins in terms of public discussion and in terms of who knows what would be a little bit upset and worried by this sudden shift. There are just uncountable examples of this type of resource that are suddenly available to us. Things like email, things like texting, the ability to publish information in a format that anyone, anywhere can access without using a drop of ink or a single page of non-renewable paper, without paying a cent for it in a lot of cases. That's just amazing. That an individual can reach an audience of a size that previously would have only been accessible by an entity like the New York Times. That's just wild. That I could take a photo, post it on social media, share an experience, a view, a perspective, a discovery with the entire planet for free. And that's free for me and for everybody who is accessing it. That's an awe-inspiring shift if you take the time to sit and think about it and what that means and the potential that it allows us to have. There are uncountable examples of this, of of products and services, of infrastructure that have allowed us to level the global playing field in terms of access and knowledge and connectivity in overall power. People in real life are walking around in the real world with more knowledge, more connectivity, being overall more capable than ever before. All of us have superpowers that our parents when they were our age, couldn't have dreamed of. And that's not imaginary. It's not weird, cyberspacey voodoo that only takes place in a bizarre, digital, fantasy, parallel reality. It's here. It's real. This is magic that we are able to access from that fantasy world, here in the real world. And in a lot of cases, the result of this, the results of this are immensely positive and have massive implications. And yes, this is alarming to those aforementioned people in power, also to nation states and other such organizational entities, because the more disseminated power there is, the more power each individual has, by definition, the less concentrated power exists within these entities. 
as more of us have more power to influence our own lives and to gain more knowledge and more access ourselves as individuals, the less of that the nation states and other government entities have to divvy out as they see fit and to keep for themselves. And most of these systems are evolving to greater or lesser degrees as a result. They are clamping down on free speech. They are opening up, in some cases, formerly classified information, because you might as well put it out there yourself if people are going to get access to it anyway. Some of these entities are more widely sharing this power so that they are the ones sharing it rather than people coming in and getting it. And others are doing what they can to try to clamp down on the freedoms that people potentially could enjoy for free by accessing these different resources. The dominant movement here is that these centers of power know that there are fortifications that they can no longer hold, and some of which are no longer worth holding, while others are reinforcing and hoping to maintain these founts of power, even as hackers and tech-enabled journalists and, and normal people with smartphones and cameras and social network profiles show them every day that this fortification maintenance isn't very likely to hold for very long. Now, it's true that what empowers benevolent or neutral players also empowers malevolent players. This is true of any technology, of course, but the rapid rollout and immense amplification of effort that the net and other related technologies allows is something that we'll need to keep in mind and work into all of our future plans. But of all of these conflicts that are part of this larger discussion, the one that is probably most impactful on this specific discussion that we're having about the taxation of online infrastructure is the debate over where one ends and the other begins. This is a debate, I think, that will really be heating up over the next couple of years because we are coming to face the fact that these two worlds are not really separate in any real maintainable way. They're intertwined. They're interwoven even, and increasingly so. For a time, there was like a real world, a real concrete reality, and then a super simple digital world that you could imagine was there, but it wasn't really. It was kind of just a collection of code and people imagining themselves into the text-based worlds that they were able to create and connect to as a result of these technologies. It was a lot of professionals, largely, and academics that were able to share some information with each other and gossip with each other using kind of an electronic postal service. But today, our currencies flow through digital systems. Our stoplights are controlled by algorithms that live in computer terminals miles away. Our relationships are often started, maintained, and grown through digital mediums. Increasingly, tech like GPS and smartphones and the burgeoning field of augmented reality is strengthening that bond, further weaving the digital fantasy land into our real-world everyday experience. There's no real concrete division between the real world and the virtual world anymore. And to think that we can separate them now, after one has become so dependent on the other, is kind of ridiculous. You could still argue that at the moment, the digital economy, companies like Amazon, they're like an invisible lifeblood flowing through our transactions. They're absolutely part of the larger economy, but they're still separate from it. 
They're not the same as going to a water park to pay for an experience or to go to Walmart to buy a product. They work in a very different way. But increasingly, these services and these companies are becoming just a layer overlapping our daily experience. Yes, they're different, but they're different in the same way that, say, Walmart was different than a general store when they opened up. They created a new advantage for themselves, and they innovated and birthed a new type of economy in a lot of different ways. And they did it by using the newest technologies of the time, and I would argue that Amazon is doing the same here. It's just very different technologies, and it's part of a larger digital economic movement. So does all this, does this sudden shift and the fact that this fantasy world is now interwoven with the real world, does that make us harder to govern and to organize? Does it make it more difficult for us to work together, to create movements, to create new things? I would say probably only if we fight the potential for evolution, for social, for structural, for economic, for technological evolution that these tools allow us. Like every other tool that we've ever built as a species, these tech tools, they empower us, but only if we design them correctly only if we use them correctly, only if we evolve social systems that make room for them. We only really benefit from them to the utmost if we use them well. A hammer might do a serviceable job as a doorstop, but it's much more effective fulfilling its intended role. And the same is true with a smartphone or a blockchain or an autonomous vehicle. You could potentially use a lot of these different things as doorstops, but they will much better serve their owner and everybody else if they are used as intended. And if we reshape the way that we operate to make room for the abilities that they offer us, it's probably safe to assume that our overall quality of life for the tech-enabled population will continue to increase. That's been the trend, no matter what the news tries to tell you. Things have been getting progressively better and better for the majority of the population of the planet, and I think that will continue unabated so long as we continue to ensure that more and more people have access to these gifts and are able to contribute to them as a result. And that means that we still have a lot of work to do in the real world with real world problems, particularly in the developing world. There's a lot of people who need to have access to these resources so that they can level the playing field in their area, in their geographic region, in their real-world situation as well. A lot of these problems could be solved by using technology. Others will require different types of solutions, but can still be enabled and amplified by the connective tissue that technology allows in terms of communication tools and access to information and so on. As things continue to evolve, there might be radically different governing systems that make more sense. As more of us are connected and educated and safe and secure and fed and housed, at least partially as a result of this technological revolution that we're going through. But we don't have the groundwork in place for all of that yet. So it very well may make sense to install more taxes on these online systems in the meantime to ensure that the bridges don't collapse and that social safety net programs don't collapse and so that those who are down on their luck won't fall too far before they are caught. Yes, it will be cool to create augmented reality artwork that overlays real-world buildings, but 
Until we reach that point, we certainly don't want those buildings to collapse while we focus all of our attention on cool pixel stuff at the expense of real-world things like deteriorating concrete and steel. As we create these systems, though, as we figure out ways to maintain the real world while continuing to evolve the digital world so that both grow, neither grows at the expense of the other, we have to make sure not to push too hard. Because if we overtax a company like Netflix or Amazon out of negligence or ignorance or out of vengeance at the behest of maybe the old guard or other people in power who want revenge because of their deteriorating power and want to cripple their more nimble and capable offspring, we risk losing the benefits of these things if we drain them in this way. The benefits that we already enjoy and those that are yet to come, and most of the best benefits that will emerge from these technologies we still don't have yet. What we need to find is a system or a series of systems that allow us to continue to enjoy the fruits of our technology without draining the underlying infrastructure that makes them so fruitful. Maybe Pennsylvania's position here, a 6% tax, is warranted. Maybe they're going too far. Maybe they're not going far enough. I will say that today, I personally have access to tools, knowledge, entertainment, and so many other resources that would not have been available to anyone on the planet at any price just 20 years ago. In some cases, five years ago. That's remarkable. That is a type of wealth that is very difficult to measure using our current units of measurement, focusing as we tend to do on monetary value above all else. It's hard to put a dollar figure on all of these conveniences and all of this access, all of these new abilities that I enjoy. Cyberspace allows us to make better use of meat space in terms of the value we get from every resource, but also in how we use fewer resources to enjoy higher-end lifestyles. 20 years ago, it would have taken me 30 or 40 different devices to have access to the same benefits that I have with just my smartphone today. And it's not because the device itself is this miraculous thing. It's because it taps into this larger resource of the internet. Whatever the specifics might be of how we balance the internet world with the real world and ensure that their intertwining is beneficial on both sides, I sincerely hope that it allows us to continue to build upon these latent benefits and the powers that this fantasy world allows us here in the real world while continuing to ensure that a larger portion of the planet's population is able to enjoy them. So of the superpowers that I enjoy as a human being living in the 21st century is the ability to publish and present and promote and project any message that I might want to put out into the world and have accessed by a large number of people. And I'm able to do this because I host my own websites, whether it's an online business or a real-world brick-and-mortar meat space business. Whatever the case might be for you, if you are looking for hosting, wanting to build something online, a wonderful place to start is hostgator.com LKT. There you will find all of HostGator's offerings, 
plus a bonus discount. And the, the discount is substantial. So I highly recommend checking that out. It's a great way to help yourself move forward on that project and to help the show as well. Another one of the primary benefits of living in the future, in my opinion, is access to information and entertainment in a way that has never been attainable before. I absolutely love books and I have come to love audiobooks in particular over the last couple of years. I listen to them while road tripping, I listen to them while cooking, I listen to them interchangeably with podcasts really because they're essentially these great big long podcasts that are cut into chapter/episodes. If you are interested in indulging in audiobooks in the same way that I do, I recommend giving Audible a try, and you can do that for free. You can get a free month-long trial of Audible by going to audibletrial.com/lkt. Going to that link will get you a month free of Audible, which is a massive collection of audiobooks, and it will also get you a free audiobook of your choice. And I've been giving book recommendations for people. And today's suggestion is a book that just came out recently, and it's one of my favorite nonfiction books ever now, I think. I just enjoyed the hell out of this book listening to it. I was so fascinated. The book is entitled I Contain Multitudes, and the subtitle is The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. I have been just gobbling up all of the information that I've been able to find about microbiomes, in particular the human microbiome, because it's it's a very recent science, or at least it's very recent that we know this much about it, enough to actually make educated statements about it. And the author of this book, Ed Yong, is one of the premier researchers in this field. I've been paying close attention to his work on Twitter, and so I was very excited to find out he had a book coming out on the subject. And so if you've ever been curious about all of the wee beasties that make up a human, the reason that I often think of humans as ecosystems rather than individual entities, this is the book you want to read. This book goes into the history of things like bacteria and viruses and microflora of all shapes and sizes and explains why it's such an interesting science, why it's so important to understand and the potential benefits of it, including things like getting rid of pharmaceuticals nearly completely so that we can just adjust our inner ecosystems to maintain better balance and to help prevent and cure diseases. It's really, really fascinating and educational on multiple levels. It's very well written, and the audiobook version has a delightful narrator with an English accent. So regardless of where you read it, I highly recommend checking out the book I Contain Multitudes by Ed Yong. And if you do use that audibletrial.com slash LKT link, you can get this book or any other book on Audible for free. So that's another way that you can get it. If you do not enjoy the service, you can always cancel your membership. It takes absolutely no effort at all. You just click a little button. But I do think that you will enjoy it like I do. And if you do, enjoy that access to a new fount of information from the digital world. Thank you so much for your support of the show. Checking out those sponsors is one way to support Let's Know Things. Another way to support it is directly. You can contribute monetarily if you like by going to letsknowthings.com. Scroll down a little bit and you'll see a bunch of different links where you can contribute a dollar per show. 
more if you'd like, but a dollar per show would be epic. You can also support the show by sharing it with your friends, sharing it with social media, leaving a review and some stars up on iTunes. All of these things help a whole lot. The continued existence and flourishing of the show is dependent on continuing to bring more people in and ideally the right people, people who are enthusiastic and geeky and willing to learn and look at things from different perspectives. So if you know of somebody like that, bring them on in. Doing so is very helpful and I appreciate it. You can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at letsknowthings.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter there. The newsletter comes out every Monday and contains a curated assortment of links to interesting things. You can find Let's Know Things on Instagram and Facebook at Let's Know Things. You can find me personally pretty much everywhere on the internet at Colin is my name. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com and you can find my YouTube show at considerthis.io. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm -hmm.